Pumpkin Spice Edition Mark II of uh, Talking Space. This is show number 712 for Monday, October 19th, 2014. My name's Gene McCulka, and I'm welcoming on board Cassie Tamanini. How you doing there? Doing well, Gene. And uh, we're going to be flying ourselves this week. Mark Ratterman is off on assignment. You'll hear about that later on in the program. Kat Robeson was away from our desk here these past couple of weeks. She was over in Jerusalem covering IAC 2015, and boy, she's going to be coming back with a ton of Traveler's Tales, and Sawyer's got the night off tonight. So we're going to dive right in because, wow, we've got a really, really packed show for you. First uh, little bit of an announcement here. We have a new Iron Man in U.S. spaceflight. That is U.S. astronaut Scott Kelly. On Friday, October 16th, Scott Kelly began his 383rd day of living in space, surpassing astronaut Mike Fink's record of 382 grand total mission elapsed time just above uh, Earth orbit on board the International Space Station. This is really, really a big milestone on the one-year mission. Kelly will continue to go for it, and I believe there's another little event coming up on board the International Space Station. There will be two extravehicular activities, or EVAs, coming up for uh, ISS maintenance. Those two EVAs will occur on October 28th and November 6th. The uh, one on October 28th, is to go ahead and just do some minor maintenance work outside the station. I believe also they're going to put a thermal cover on uh, uh, the AMS experiment. That's the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer. It's a device here that we've talked about on Talking Space a few times. The uh, one coming up on November 6th will be the 33rd U.S. spacewalk, and it too will be trying to track down the source of an ammonia leak they ran across back in November of 2012. They tried to isolate where this thing was, couldn't do it, so they're going to go ahead and try to track this thing down. NASA's going to have a press conference, I believe the uh, one that they do have scheduled for describing this particular EVA will be set for this coming Thursday, so NASA will be providing coverage live, so look around for that. Also, I would like to mention that the October 28th spacewalk is the day before Kelly breaks another record for his 216th consecutive day in space, and that will be breaking Michael Lopez Alegria's record for the single longest spaceflight by an American. That was back on Expedition 14 in 2006. This one-year mission is going to—it's going to see a lot of U.S. space endurance records drop by the wayside, and I'm wondering how long it's going to take to have a new Iron Man after Scott Kelly is done cleaning up the record books. Who knows? It might actually take a long-duration mission that goes a little further away. And yeah, mission to Mars, anybody? 
<laughs> all sorts of records will be falling then. Oh yeah, but uh, <laughs> it'll it, it's it's going to be something to look forward to, and hopefully New Jersey zone Scott Kelly. Sorry, whenever there's Ooh, a go Jersey. Yeah, <laughs> whenever there's a interesting little story running around, there's always a Jersey connection. We've got another one coming up in the not too distant future on this very program, so stay tuned. So let's move forward with another little story that basically, well, just absolutely blew up both my Twitter feed and my Facebook feed this past week. It's a little bit of a strange case of a star that is some 1,480 light years away sitting in the constellation of Cygnus the Swan. It goes by the unattractive name of KIC84. 62582. Well, this was a star that NASA's Kepler Observatory, as you know, the, the Kepler mission is set up to look around for exoplanets or planets that are orbiting other stars. This particular uh, star Kepler had been looking at for a while in this particular region of space and uh, was feeding down some data and, you know, as a result of uh, some research done through some crowdsourcing, taking a look at all the data. A little bit of discovery was made. Well, this star was not behaving the way you would expect it. Apparently, there was some occultations going on. There might have been some kind of debris flying around the star, and it was happening on a fairly regular basis. Cassie, again, the scientist that was really, really picked up the, the ball and uh, and ran with it on this one. Her name again, and uh, she hails from Yale University, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, she does, and I'm not sure if I'm saying this correctly, but her name is Tabitha Boyajian. That's correct, and well, she too wrote a paper that uh, was was published this past uh, week. She basically called it "Where's the Flux," and really didn't understand what was going on with this thing. But she went ahead and describe some very, very interesting natural possibilities of what might be going on. So, Cassie, if you could describe a little bit about that, we'll just pick them off one by one. One was was a lot of cometary debris, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Right, right. That's the thing. Uh, that's one of the hypotheses. But they said that the problem is that every single hypothesis they have come up with, they can find all these reasons it can't be that. Of course, the same could be said about Pluto these days. So um, oh, wow. this is how science happens. So yeah, there they ruled out variability from the star itself or interference from other nearby stars. Clumps of dust is one of the major hypotheses now. Collisions with an asteroid belt around the star. As they say on New Scientist, a smash-up between two larger bodies like the one thought to have produced the Earth and Moon in our solar system wouldn't produce all of the dips that they observed. So it's everything that they keep coming up with has been dashed a little bit. The exocomets idea is that there were a family of them and they were broken up by the gravity of the star, creating dust and gas. And they would have to be on an eccentric orbit. It says passing in front of the star every 700 days or so. And then if they kept breaking up and spreading out it could explain the irregular dips but again it's that's assuming a lot <laughs> exactly but this is just one piece of a puzzle that we have to put together and it's one question that this particular star is asking us 
Well, let's just say the confusion started um, again with another Penn State astronomer. Again, Cassie, you'll have to forgive me. The name just ran and hid. Jason Wright. Thank you. Astronomer Jason Wright over again at uh, Penn State University picked this up and was looking at things and so on and so forth. She actually sent him her paper. Right. And I believe that both of them sort of collaborated on this, if I'm not mistaken, to a degree as far as what... He wasn't officially part of the paper. They know each other and she sent over her findings to him to see what he thought. Right. And they kind of kicked it around a little bit, but... When the press asked Wright about what he thought might be going on, well, let's just say a fantastic little uh, tidbit came in. Which we should mention that this is specifically what he looks for. He is looking for an extraterrestrial civilization. That is his research. That's his area. Yeah, but I think he mentioned to the term alien megastructure came out. Yes, a swarm of megastructures is what he told The Atlantic. Right, and that's what the mainstream press kind of sort of latched onto, like, forgive the description here, almost like the Vulcan death grip, if you will, and there's no such thing. I know Star Trek fans. <laughs> but it, it just, it, it, people just kind of latched onto that, and that went absolutely viral throughout the social media hinterlands. Well, and it's funny you mention. Star Trek, because it keeps making me think of the episode of Next Generation when they find Scotty in the Dyson Sphere, because there are people who are saying that this is a Dyson Sphere, except instead of being a fully enclosed star, that it would actually be all these different megastructures with solar panels. And so you would still sort of see the star rather than have it be all enclosed in metal like it was in Next Gen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but And of course, Dyson Spheres have been in a ton of sci-fi, but that's the episode that it makes me think of. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, I think somebody brought that up too in some of the articles I read, but... This isn't the first time we seem to have gone off the deep end on this. And one of the things that I kind of brought to light to a lot of folks on social media was the fact that, hey, guys, we see something weird going on. What's the first thing we think about? Well, could it be comets? Well, could it be something natural? Well, could it be this? Could it be that? But what's the first thing that comes out of the media's mouth? You guessed it. Aliens. Yeah, before we go down that path, let's go ahead and look at what observation and conclusion do to us. Okay. One of the favorite things I, I, I like bringing up, and I, I believe I, I brought this up before when we talked about this, was Giovanni Schiaparelli looking at Mars. Mm-hmm. And he basically announced that well, we see a lot of well, what he referred to as canali or grooves on the surface of Mars. Right, because that's the word for grooves in Italian. Right, exactly. <laughs> what happened when it hit here in the States? It got translated to, you guessed it, canals, which means something that was manufactured by someone else. So now Mars has got this ancient civilization over there, dying of thirst, trying to bring water from the poles down to the thirsty cities and 
all of this other stuff. And when Chaparelli announced that, well, his eyesight was failing, Percival Lowell went ahead and picked up the telescope to continue Chaparelli's work. And what did he see? Canals, lots and lots of canals. So you've got to basically put your own preconceptions away of what you're looking at. Again, just like Jason Wright, he looks for that type of alien megastructure type stuff, you know, or tries to go ahead and put that in the proper context. If you see what I'm driving at, you know, sometimes you have to wonder, you got to put your preconceptions aside and go where the data takes you. Again, I'm going to put up another observation, the situation on Venus. We didn't know what it was. We would look at Venus through our telescopes and say, hey, I can't see a thing there. What might be happening? Well, there's a lot of clouds, perhaps. And this is what Dr. Carl Sagan had put together in the first Cosmos episode. And it was something that he had done some of his doctoral work on, was the situation on Venus. So, all right, fine. You're looking at Venus you can't see a thing. Well, is it clouds? Is it fog? Well, if it's a cloudy, you know, Venus might be this vast swamp. Well, if there's swamps, there's plants. If there's plants, there might be ferns. If there's ferns, there might be lizard things living around there or fish. Heck, there might even be dinosaurs. Observation. You can't see a thing on Venus. Conclusion. Dinosaurs? <laughs> You know, so, 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 so you, you've got to really, really be careful when you tread down this path. And I think the media kind of, the mainstream media at least kind of sensationalized this just probably to get clicks and things like that on their web feeds. But that was really about it. And of course, people kind of, because it was the mainstream media, bought into some of this hook, line and sinker. And my thought is before you go ahead and go down that path and say, you know, alien megastructures and all this stuff. Remember, and, and again, another Saganism, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. We don't have it yet, guys. We really need to go ahead and do our digging and find out what's going on out there. So let's keep looking at this. Let's keep trying to put together the puzzle that Cygnus the Swan is giving us and see where this leads. I would like to add, though, like, in the Washington Post article, they end it with, I'd like to quote it directly, of course, the star in question is about 1,481 light years away from Earth, meaning that even if aliens did create a giant solar panel complex out there, they did so in the 6th century, while we were emptying chamber pots out of second-story windows and fighting off the first bubonic plague pandemic. Quite a bit has changed on Earth since then. So, you know, it's funny how you do have this speculation and stuff, but I also feel like they actually added a little something that made it seem kind of extra ridiculous that this could be the case, which I thought was kind of a cute tongue-in-cheek way to uh, handle it. Of course, that's the Washington Post and not the kind of site that is quite as clickbaity as some of the ones that we read. But obviously, if anybody puts forth the idea that there might be alien mega structures, that's what everybody's going to run with. Because, you know what? But they're not going to care otherwise. <laughs> the mainstream media doesn't particularly, they, you know, it might have gotten a much quicker mention, maybe, but probably not even that if it weren't for the fact that somebody had said alien megastructures. It probably wouldn't get any coverage at all whatsoever if it weren't for that. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. It's like, I, I and I honestly think that the people who, 
are going to actually full out believe that stuff are the kind of people who are generally going to believe all kinds of things. I mean, there's plenty of people who think that there's aliens walking around this earth right now. So <laughs> it's kind of tough. It's uh, it, it, because part of me is just glad this is getting coverage at all. And then part of me is so annoyed that once again, it takes something like this to make, I mean, this is a unique phenomenon We've never seen anything like this. All of the planets that Kepler was, or all the stars that Kepler was looking at, we saw this nowhere else. And of course, the really frustrating thing is that right after Kepler captured this, it went offline. And so no further observations could be made. And it would have, if it was on, actually, if the timeline isn't as eccentric as it might be, if, if there's any steadiness to the timeline of this, basically, there should have just been identical dips just before now. So we've already missed the next opportunity. So what I think is actually the most important story in all of this is that we need to continue this hunt. We need to fund these programs and we need to keep this going because what a lost opportunity. Well, let me see. The James Webb telescope is going up when? That might be a possibility for it to go ahead and take a look at that. We, we could theoretically go ahead and use Hubble to, to point at it and see what it can find, but I don't think because of the, the spectrum of light that Hubble has that it could probably get the, the data that we really, really need to go ahead and take a look at it, correct? Yeah, from what I was reading, we don't have a way to, we didn't have a way to observe at this point. And, you know, I'm just saying this is why we need to continue supporting these particular types of programs, including James Webb, you know, as the public as well, because this needs to be looked at more. This is such a cool, different phenomenon. Any hypothesis that's thrown out there right now is basically it's it has no way to be explored and so just a reminder to everybody how important it is to keep supporting these things because we need to be able to observe this again at some point soon you know and phenomena like it yep indeed it's a it's a puzzle that the swan is giving us and we'll have to go ahead and and see how far we can unravel it with the data that we currently have and hopefully we'll get some more data soon Speaking of swans, we're going to shift some gears and come back to Earth a little bit. Another swan that was in news, except this Cygnus, is a property of a company called Orbital ATK. And it is getting ready to take its first run up to the International Space Station since the mishap of October 28th, 2014, when we lost the Antares launch vehicle and the Orb 3 mission. The Donald K. Slayton, which was going to be carrying supplies and research equipment up to the International Space Station. Unfortunately, due to a bearing problem on the Aerojet Rocketdyne AJ-26 engine, we lost the booster that day. Well, Cygnus is slowly but surely making her way back into the heavens again. The uh, first uh, delivery of the components to integrate the Cygnus spacecraft with its instrumentation module arrived at the Kennedy Space Center for integration and eventually installation onto a uh, United Launch Alliance Atlas V, where Cygnus is going to be targeting a, I believe, Cassie, a December 3rd 
launch from the Kennedy Space Center. Hopefully, uh, we're going to have some resources here from the program to take a look at what's going on. But this is some exciting time for Orbital ATK because this is not only just a Cygnus return of flight, but this is the larger vehicle, a uh, larger version of Cygnus, which will be able to carry a lot more cargo to the International Space Station. It will have a upgraded uh, solar array system, the same type of solar arrays that were initially slated for the Orion spacecraft. But when we decided to go ahead and go with ESA to provide the service module, those circular solar panels needed a new home, and they found it on board the Cygnus spacecraft. So part of the old Orion, in some ways, is still alive and well and would be living with, uh, with Cygnus. The other neat thing about having the new ride for this particular vehicle, you know, launch lines is Atlas V, is that we could probably stuff a lot more cargo into this particular Cygnus spacecraft. So not only will we have the larger version of the Cygnus spacecraft ready to go, but we'll also be able to load it up with a lot more cargo for the International Space Station. And right now that's kind of critical, uh, given, you know, <laughs> given the, the situation that we've kind of backed ourselves into a little bit with the loss of the Dragon this past summer. And, uh, of course, the loss of Cygnus. We haven't been able to fly either one of those two vehicles to the ISS. We still had uh, the Japanese HTV that made a poor call on the uh, International Space Station over the summer. And, of course, the, the progress modules that the Russians have been providing. But this, this launch will get us back into the cargo game. So this is going to be kind of exciting. And all eyes are going to be looking at the Kennedy Space Center for uh, that launch on December 3rd. Yeah, I mean, from a from an ISS logistics standpoint, it's been a challenge. But NASA's come up with uh, some interesting workarounds with, as they always do, with this time with HTV, and and they've probably had to go ahead and pull some strings with the Russians along with Progress. Although I understand we're not really sending logistics up with Progress anymore, we had to jump through a few hoops with HTV, but now with Cygnus and just just the I really don't like touting safety records, as you, as this audience well knows. But Atlas V has had a pretty good track record going forward. Again, we just celebrated not too long ago the 100th launch of an Atlas V. The Atlas has got a wonderful track record. It'll be a good way to get the new Cygnus off the ground, because th this particular spacecraft, too, is being looked at. Well, at least a pressurized version of it may come about in the not-too-distant future. I know NASA is looking at that in partnership with another company, I believe Lockheed Martin is also in that mix, where they're kind of looking at two pressurized kind of modules to use in conjunction with Orion. So 
Cygnus still may play a part in that. Fasten your seatbelts on that when I watch that part of the story really, really close. And hopefully we'll dig into that a little bit deeper as we get closer and closer to launch time, because I'm kind of excited about that possibility. So that's not the only news we have from the realm of return to flight. It was announced at IAC and then reiterated just a couple of days ago that SpaceX's Falcon 9 is also getting ready to spread her wings and fly once more. They're targeting right now a launch date somewhere in between late November and I believe December 15th. I believe they've gone ahead and they've decided that through some juggling of their own cargo manifest, I believe uh, Orbcom this time is going to be launching about 11 CubeSats on board this particular spacecraft. We'll just see how this all works out. So, again, this is another return to flight story. I'm kind of a little suspicious of the timing. Trying to steal a little thunder? Yeah, no pun intended. I'm kind of suspicious of the timing on this. And, of course, if SpaceX is fully aware that they are going to have to yield the range to uh, the Atlas V Cygnus combination during the December 3rd time frame. But we'll just see how the horse trading goes over there at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, because I'm sure there's going to be some horse training involved with this particular launch schedule. If SpaceX is able to get Falcon 9 off the ground, again, this is a win not just for SpaceX, but again for uh, the commercial cargo program and yeah, I think for, for uh, U.S. space flight overall. Yeah, definitely. I think the more that we can get back to flight and get things back on track, again, I just think the better. And this mission is a great way for SpaceX to return to flight because it does not require a relight of the second stage engine following orbital insertion. So it'll give them a chance to... It's a little simpler mission, and I think that's a great way for them to go back. It's not a trip to the ISS. It's not quite as mission critical in the sense of bringing you know, supplies to humans. It's a good way to get back to flight, basically. It was a good choice. Yeah, I agree. I believe the satellite, they had to go ahead and make some horse trading there, too, with another company, SES, that SpaceX was hoping to get their satellite off the ground first. But... As you pointed out, since this particular mission does not require a relight of that second stage, it was better to accommodate Orbcom, which, once again, by the way, is based here in New Rochelle, New Jersey. Again, if there's a weird story running around, there's always a New Jersey tie-in for some reason. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, okay, fine. I'm waving. I'm I'm waving the Garden State flag again. I'm sorry. I'm being a bit provincial, but that's okay. Uh, uh, we very rarely get to do it on on this show because a lot of it takes place out of here. But uh, I, you know, little did we know. Who knew? Here we are in New Jersey, and there are two space stories uh, lined up just on this program alone. The main thing is that a SpaceX is back in business again. They're able to go ahead and get the Falcon 9 off, hopefully the end of the year, and it would be a good conclusion to have two success stories coming out of the Kennedy Space Center for the end of the year this year. So grab the popcorn, fasten your seatbelts. It'll be a good show coming out of the KSC, I hope, in the coming weeks. 
to go ahead and, and go into another return to flight story, since we are talking about return to flight mainly, this past October uh, in 2014 on Halloween, as you know, we lost the VSS Enterprise, Virgin Galactic Spaceship Two. We unfortunately also lost pilot Michael Alsbury in that uh, horrific accident. And Virgin Galactic is slowly but surely getting Spaceship Two ready for launch again. But they're going by the book. They're going by the numbers. They're not taking this as a huge rush at this point. George uh, Whitesides basically said they were cautious. They're not going to go ahead and start talking timelines just yet for return any return to flight testing. They're doing five or ten tests gradually, and they're going to ratchet it up slowly. They may be able to do, they're saying about maybe two to three test flights and able to move a little quicker than the first test flight program. This is coming from uh, uh, Flight Global. But they're being cautious about it. I think, too, Virgin Galactic seems to be shifting away from, hey, you too can be an astronaut, although that's probably part of their picture. Uh, I think their shift now is to get into more of the uh, launch service providing end of things because, let's face it, that's where the money is. So they're going full tilt on getting their booster launcher one ready to go for small sat use and by the way that means that's a good lead into the next story here nasa just this past week announced that they were going to go ahead and award three companies a uh, a cubesat contract to launch these venture class cubesats to a low Earth orbit. One of those that won one of the contracts was, again, Virgin Galactic for its Launcher 1 booster. Another company was based in Los Angeles, California, uh, Rocket Lab. They are going to use their Electron booster again. Finally, a interesting little tie-in with SpaceX, another company called Firefly, which sort of picked up from where the Falcon 1 left off. This was a group of uh, folks that used to work for SpaceX, and uh, saw SpaceX kind of leaving the small launch class booster market and going, of course, to pursue Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy. And they felt, hey, there's still money to be made at this end. So they developed uh, their own booster and opened up their own company and thus was born Firefly. And all three of these companies have just won uh, a NASA award to to launch these CubeSats. So... You think, Cassie, this is going to open up the CubeSat market a little bit more to to folks that might want to launch a CubeSat to, say, you know, universities, elementary schools even? Or or, or where do you see this going? I'm certainly hoping so because CubeSats are such a wonderful opportunity. I, I certainly believe the more people who get involved in space from elementary schools like you said right on up and of course some of the most important work is being done by um, at the university level even by students at the university level so getting all these different people this opportunity they're so cool and they're so wonderful for this I just think it's for the benefit of all to get more people these opportunities and gosh you can pack a lot of them in (laughs) <laughs> one of the things that they're still looking at with CubeSats, one of the things that I thought about when I sat through a, a few presentations on CubeSats, one ironically was through uh, uh, when we covered the A1 launch of Antares 
This was the first launch of the Antares booster back in April of uh, 2013. Good Lord, it, sounds, it seems like ancient history right now. But um, one of the things that kind of struck me about that, and, and these things aren't really all that big. They're not all that tall at all. I mean, the antennas on the darn things are tape measures. And no joke. I mean, they're just clipped, you know, tape measure devices. And voila, you've got the antenna. The brains around it are smartphones for the most part. Yeah, that they usually have a volume of exactly one liter. It's a 10 centimeter cube with a mass of no more than 1.33 kilograms. Yeah, they're they're not as and and they're not the. I was about ready to point out they're not the heaviest things in the world. I mean, you can easily lift the lift the things up. But you know, one of the things that that I kind of wonder about CubeSat it's, is one of my pet projects going forward is you know of course the orbital debris problem that we're having, and I'm wondering. Since these things can't be easily deorbited, at least not on on an on-demand basis, because there's really no thrusters on them, what CubeSats are doing to the orbital debris issue and so on. So this is something that a lot of experts are kind of looking at and trying to figure out how this plays into everything. But again... Which is a, obviously that's... a very, very important question. You've got these little under three pound things around. They're essentially space debris <laughs> right. um, to, compared to any other spacecraft. Because I would like to point out that 1.33 kilograms is about 2.9 pounds. I mean, that's really tiny. And yeah, it, it could pose a danger. I can lift one of these. I mean, I mean, with, with no problem. I mean, the, the, you are... can lift one of these? I hope so. It's under three pounds. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's lighter than my purse. Actually, I think that might be lighter than my wallet. Yeah, I mean, you can lift one of them. What I'm saying is you can lift one of these, these with no problem. Your dog can just grab it and carry it off whatever you want. And it does open up science to folks that, well, may not have, have the opportunity to participate in an orbital experiment. But one of the th problems going forward may be looking at this from a situational awareness point of view. So I'm, I'm just going to throw that out there. I know people are kind of looking at that, and that's a question we're going to put off for a future show. But uh, I still think that CubeSats are a pretty cool way to introduce science to folks that may not normally have the opportunity. So they're a cheap way of getting the job done, perhaps, and there may be uh, more kids involved in science and technology. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Moving right along, our very own Mark Ratterman had an extraordinary interview to share with you folks. And Cassie, why don't you go ahead and tell the folks all about it? Well, yes, this is kind of an unusual interview for us because it's an interview with an astronaut, one of my favorites, Nicole Stott. What's interesting is it's Mark and Nicole Stott talking largely about flying airplanes <laughs> and it's absolutely fascinating i think we should just let them listen i'm talking with a retired astronaut today nicole stott we're in orlando and nicole has just arrived on her way out to some media events at kennedy space center visitor complex we're gonna be talking about flying and how pilots deal with adverse conditions nicole welcome to talking space thanks thanks for having me I'm really interested because I know I've heard some of the story, but how did you get started having an interest in aviation? Well, I think it, it really started as a family thing. Uh, my dad was a private pilot, and growing up, he built a couple airplanes in our garage at home. And 
As a result, we also spent a lot of time, I would say most of our weekends, out at the local airport. And I, I think it just got in my blood that way, you know, having a dad who was into it already, having a mom who was supportive of us, you know, hanging out there and flying with him and helping work on the airplanes. And I think that's really where the start was. How old were you when you started to get an understanding of, uh, or actually touch controls on an airplane and got to, got to learn how to fly? Touching controls. Um, I was probably 12 or 13 when, you know, I actually, you know, thought about it when I was in the plane and, and touching other than just being a passenger in the airplane in that front cockpit with the, <laughs> the no canopy and hair flying around and stuff. But uh, it was probably, I don't know, 14, 13, 14 probably when I started thinking about it a little more seriously. And in addition to my dad and the other folks that were out at the airport, there was a young lady named Val Spees who she and her husband ran a little glider operation out there. And she had a Piper Cub. And when, you know, she was around, I would go flying with her too. And she'd let me take the whole thing. So that was awesome. Got to be fun. Now, here I am. I work for the FAA. I've never, never had Come my on. hands on it. Never have. <laughs> never have. Yeah. I've only ridden up front on a few aircraft, and those were commuters, and that was back before current day. Um, about the safety of flight, we don't hear much about uneventful flights of small planes, helicopters, commercial aircraft, military aircraft, test aircraft, even <laughs> spacecraft, because everything goes so well so often. But... With general aviation, since we're starting with that, how do, pe how do the pilots manage to fly years and years safely? Is it luck? Is it skill? What's that world like? Well, I mean, I think there's a mix of that involved with anything. Uh, I think that the, you know, the people that want to fly want to fly. So they're going to learn about flying, and they're going to be, I think for the most part, um, very diligent and, and serious about the training that goes into flying. And I, I think that kind of starting, you know, the way you have to start into uh, being able to fly on your own to earn a license is, is the right kind of path to get you set up for being careful and uh, safe when you're flying on your own. Helps having good mentors to uh, to teach you along the way too. It does, yeah, and that I think that's true anywhere as well. And you know, I think most pilots um, find themselves at some point, you know, hanging out at the airport, meeting other pilots, learning about uh, the way they fly and the things that that they've done or encountered along the way. The kind of lessons learned stuff that that help you deal with things better if you happen to encounter it. With your career at NASA, was that the, the first place where you got around some of the military pilots, the folks who fly the high-performance jets? Yeah, that was the first time I really, you know, other than older, retired, uh, you know, Air Force folks that were, you know, doing kind of general aviation stuff, uh, the, the first time I really was working kind of side-by-side side or meeting people that had flown professionally uh, in the in the military was with NASA and and they're you know at the core they are there that they have the same thing going on that the, the guys out at the local airport do there's there's this I think it has to be in your blood there is a passion kind of thing when it comes to flying so they're looking to really hone their skills and not not slack off oh yeah yeah and I think you know in the military you are put through a very rigorous you know continuous kind of training that 
there's what do they call it the bold face you know when something goes wrong you know there's the steps you do without ever pulling out a procedure without ever having to look at anything it's just you know it and you do it I read a book recently where and I, I don't even remember now exactly which book it was but they talked about a pilot who when he was uh, flying with his with his instructor the instructor every five minutes would say if you lost your engine where would you land what are some things that go through a pilot's mind as, as to if certain things went wrong, what would I do? What kind of examples do you relate to there? Well, you know, that that's the perfect example. I think that every instructor pilot must be taught that line, you know, and be ready to, to deal with teaching their, their student how to deal with it. And it is, I think it's one of those things that's in the back of your mind the whole time you're flying. And I think that... Um, you know, you rely at that point, those early days, on kind of a banter between your instructor. But then you, you know, you, you just have to know yourself. And you're looking for certain cues on the ground. You're, you know, looking at the systems on your airplane. And um, it all just kind of comes together, uh, especially if you've paid attention along the way. How does a pilot handle, you know, unexpected weather or... You know, what are some good and bad examples of reactions to things like that? Oh, wow. Um, well, I think there's good and bad examples of, of all kinds of things, and it can even be where you're going to land if you haven't been thinking about it. Um, you know, weather is one of those things. It's, it's can be very unpredictable, but on the other hand, there are so many wonderful tools now for, uh, for looking at what the weather forecast is going to be, for at least having some gauge of okay, when I get to this certain point on my flight path, I better be looking or pulling up the radio um, to, to get the latest brief or on my iPad to, to find it as well. I think that's one of the things that's kind of evolved over, the over time that's really helpful as well to pilots, but also can be a bit of a crutch is the technology that's available for information like weather or... Um, you know, flight planning in general is very, very much available to you now on things like your iPad. Um, and flight path direction and that kind of thing is available on your iPad. But there's, which is a wonderful thing, it's a really nice thing, especially in a, in a small airplane where the instrumentation might not be as advanced. But there's also this, you know, the other side of it that's like, okay, you got to be careful about that because you don't want to rely on that so much that you don't know how to use the instruments in your airplane anymore, that you don't know how to pull out a chart and plot your course from one point to another, and you don't know how to communicate effectively with the, with the flight control team on the ground or your um, tower folks. Um, so there's, a, there's an interesting balance that goes on now that perhaps in the past you didn't have to deal with, um, while at the same time it's, it's making you know, the ability to fly and be safe in small planes, um, even better. I have a friend that's an airline pilot, and he said one of the things that was drilled into him early on is, no matter what happens, remember to fly the plane. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the whole aviate, navigate, communicate thing. You know, you have to have your priorities. Yeah, you've got to be, you've got to be engaged, you know, even when the autopilot is. You know, you, you've got to be part of flying the airplane. How about uh, just shifting slightly, not so much about your, uh, your astronaut work, but, yeah. but some of the, maybe some of the things that were part of being an astronaut. You flew a lot of times across the Gulf from Houston to Florida in a T-38, and probably all over the country, I guess. How 
different an environment is that from from the more common modes of transportation or things that people that might be listening to this that are pilots are used to? Oh, it's very cool. You know, for me, even before I was an astronaut, working at at Kennedy Space Center, I would see flight crews coming in, you know, astronauts coming in in the T-38s, and I begged several of them. I'm like, oh, come on, just one ride, you know, one ride in that airplane, and, you know, of course they can't do that. And so when I um, got the job out at Johnson Space Center as a flight engineer before becoming an astronaut, I was working out in aircraft operations as a flight engineer on the shuttle training aircraft, which we could spend a whole, we could spend a whole, a lot of time talking about that airplane, too. That, that is an awesome aircraft. And as part of that job, I got to get checked out in the T-38 as a, a backseater. And, you know, the, I'm smiling right now. And when I think about flying in the T-38, it, it makes me smile. It's everything from, you know, the airplane itself, that kind of very different environment of having a helmet and a mask on and, you know, a flight suit, and it's, it's a complex airplane. I, I mean, it is, and it's an Air Force trainer, and to the people that I got to fly with, uh, you know, there are places where you get to work where, you know, and I hope you have it too. I think people that love their job have this. It's where the people you're working with have this really wonderful personality and you have a good time, but then you know if it hits the fan, that it is going to be as good as it could possibly be. It's going to be with those people because they're professionals. They know what they're doing. And that's how I felt all of the time, actually working for NASA, but in aircraft operations in particular, the personality was there. It was fun to fly, but you knew if something was going to go wrong in the airplane, that the team was ready to deal with it. And yeah. even, even in a, a aircraft, aircraft with only two, two, two seats, two seats, <laughs> Yeah. How 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 busy could it get? I mean, if what kind of things did you experience that that didn't go well that you had to work around? You know, we, I, you know, wherever there's wood, I'm knocking on it because um, very fortunate in in the T38 flights that I had, um, I don't remember anything in the air that that ended up being of significance. You know, that ended up being what I would call an emergency situation. Um, we did have, you know, several cases of, you know, say a, a generator failure. And then, you know, then you're kind of in a situation where you have to work pretty quickly in order to ensure that you don't lose the capability in other systems. But uh, again, you've got your bold face you go through as, a, as crew members you've trained on that independently and together. And, and then you have your checklist to take you through the rest and communicating with, with the ground team. Um, really impressive how that kind of simple rote uh, procedure can can get you through, you know, pretty extreme things. Um, with the T thirty eight, for in my experience, most of it would be you discover something on the ground and then you just don't take off. And as flight crew with NASA and in the astronaut office, our mode of operation was, you know, you don't need to be anywhere really. And there's there's no flight that's so important that you know, or no destination that's so important that you would risk, you know, yourself for the airplane. <laughs> I cannot think of a single thing to improve on that. And, and yet I've been, I've been the technician at, at back in the days of flight service stations where they got their first color weather radar presentation that they could look at. This is pre-internet days for, yeah. for most of us. And they could look at this weather radar and they'd see a hole in the, in a line of weather. And, you know, I could, 
I didn't talk to them, but I could tell that looking at it, they were just hoping that hole would get a little bit bigger and they yep. could run out, jump in the airplane, and squirt through it. And that always worried me because it, it's just like you got to be willing to walk away from the aircraft and go when it's go when it's right. Absolutely. We're running short of time. Uh, Nicole, how about we talk some other time and get the whole Talking Space team together and we cover some of the astronaut work that you've done and what you've been doing, how you're busy since you retired from NASA. Is that something that uh, Absolutely. we could talk I'd, to? I'd love to. I'd love to. Okay. Talking Space listeners, got something to look forward to. Nicole, thanks for sharing some time with us. I know you got a lot going on today, and I uh, appreciate very much uh, what you've had to say. You're welcome. Thanks for the interest. So what I really loved in that interview, now I'm a tech nerd, most of us probably are, most of our listeners, right? And I loved what she had to say about getting too dependent on technology and how important it is to still learn the basics, still learn how to do it, still learn how to just fly the plane. I think that's such a wonderful lesson in so many ways. Like, for example, when I first learned audio engineering and audio editing, they were people, digital had just started and we were still learning how to cut tape with a razor and splice it together. And having had to do that when you are doing destructive editing and you can't undo was the best lesson for me now that I can undo as much as I want to. So I just want to say props to Nicole for saying that this is an important thing to learn. I think that's a lesson far beyond aviation, but it's especially important if you're going to do something that does have a high risk factor. Yet sometimes you just, you got to fly the plane and it's just you. One of the things I'll, I'll, throw out there real fast about, about the interview was the personal side of it, how she got started, how she was encouraged to to move forward in her career, uh, just even as a 13 or 14 year old, just learning how to even just touch the controls and, of an aircraft. Really, it started her on a, on a completely different trajectory going forward in her life and, and just the people that came together to help her and encourage her in a dream in aviation. So, uh, kids, if you're listening, there, there's a blueprint for you. Go ahead and, and follow it. I am so looking forward to the possibility of having uh, Nicole Stott here on this microphone. So uh, we'll watch for that in the coming uh, weeks ahead. So uh, stay tuned. Some bigger things coming at you uh, here on Talking Space. Speaking of some bigger things coming at you on Talking Space... Kat Robinson had uh, a little bit, Cassie, about her adventures at IAC, and we are going to be going into those in depth when she gets back. But as a little bit of a teaser, she had uh, some commentary that uh, she wanted to talk about. So, Cassie, why don't you go ahead and kind of lead us into that, and we'll uh, we'll share it. Well, yes, actually, Kat is literally on her way home from IAC and she stopped in at my place this weekend so we took the opportunity to just give you a little taste of what's coming up next week on Talking Space. Hey Kat, thank you so much for sitting down and taking the time to talk to me while you're in the middle of traveling from Israel back to Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure to be here. So you spent the past week at the International Astronautical Congress And this year, what were the major topics that everybody seemed to be talking about? Everyone had 
moon, the journey to Mars, and commercial space on their minds. But also, there's a lot of talk about international cooperation and diversity in space sciences. Now, when you say diversity, do you mean diversity just in the sense of international agencies cooperating or in the sense of bringing more types of people into the space industry in general? I mean both. There's a lot of conversation about how international agencies can work together, how public and private sector can work together, but also how to bring in, especially in America and Europe, bring in women and people of color into the space sciences and into the workforce. That's fantastic. So did you hear some good ideas on that while you were there? Yeah, I do think that there were definitely some fantastic ideas, especially um, considering that we're still battling the use of manned, unmanned, and the theme of this year's Congress was space, the gateway for mankind's future. So that definitely put the issue of women, particularly in the workforce, front and center. Interesting. I can't wait to get more in-depth on that next Me week. Me either. Me either. <laughs> when you say that they were talking about the moon, I know you don't have time to go into it too much here, but what aspect of the moon was being talked about the most. This is, this is really a, a great topic that I'm looking forward to getting into more on our special IAC episode. But specifically, uh, Director General of ESA, Professor Jan Warner, was really excited about a concept that he called Moon Village. Um, so I'm very excited to talk about that. And it will be, I think, something all of our listeners will find equally as interesting as I did. Wow. Well, you sure know we love this topic on this show. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. I'm sure Gene will be very excited to hear about this. <laughs> I'm sure he will. <laughs> so now, right as IAC was starting up, just as people were arriving, so was the violence across Israel. How did that go? How did it affect the Congress? Was everybody okay? <laughs> So as far as I know, all the attendees of uh, the IAC this year were fine. Um, attendance was a bit down, about 1,500 less than last year in Toronto for IAC 2014. Some of the events had to be moved back closer to the International Convention Center. There were several attacks that were pretty close to, to where the convention was held. Um, I know that I didn't travel after dark after the first day just because of what was going on and, and definitely got a lot of messages from the U.S. Embassy. Um, I had some friends who had to leave the old city early because they encountered um, or heard gunshots, so <laughs> they had to leave. So it definitely was um, not the best situation and not the best time to be visiting Israel. Um, so security was definitely a concern and there was some talk about it. Uh, you may or may not have heard that actually ESA Director General Warner sent out a memo letting um, his colleagues at ESA know that if they decided not to travel, they wouldn't be penalized. So security was definitely a concern. But to my knowledge, everyone got home safe or is still traveling safely in the country. Good. Well, I'm really happy to hear that. I'm very concerned about everybody. <laughs> you and everyone I know. <laughs> well, it was a heck of a time <laughs> for, for that to start. But obviously there's no way you know that years in advance. <laughs> no, no. And, and that is a good point that uh, the sites for IAC are chosen three years in advance of each, of each Congress. So, you know, there are some things that you just can't plan for. Speaking of which, who was the big winner for, what is it, 2018? Yeah, 2018 will be in Germany, in Bremen. Fantastic! That's a wonderful place filled with space industry. Yes, yes. They, they had a very interesting and large 
and diverse booth, actually, uh, showcasing a lot of the, the industry that they have in the area. So I'm very excited for three years from now to be able to visit uh, Germany and Bremen for IAC 2018. Just to wrap this up, because you need to get back to Alabama. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What was your personal takeaway from this IAC experience and from going for a second time? I think this this year was really focused on international cooperation, and it was really about how the space community and the space sciences industry can work together for the better of all, and it was really something that was refreshing to see for me. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, and safe travels for the rest of your trip. <laughs> thank you so much. I'll be probably cruising uh, above the skies while you're recording this, so I hope that the rest of the episode goes well. Thank you very much. Thank you. So again, thank you so much, Kat, for stopping by my place on your way home and giving us a little preview. And I was listening to some of her stories. They're going to be fantastic. You do not want to miss this special episode. Thanks, Cassie. And to close out the show, on an unfortunate note, we lost one of the greats this past week with NASA, uh, George Miller who essentially was the first deputy associate administrator for manned spaceflight when NASA first started reaching out to the stars. He took office back on September 1 of 1963. Miller died on uh, October 12, 2015, after a short illness. He was 97 years old. He was in charge of not only Gemini, Apollo, and leading the future of the agency back in 1969. But he was also considered the father of Skylab and considered also the father of the space shuttle. So Millard left his indelible mark on the space agency. And there's still points, Cassie, as you mentioned during our, our pre-show discussions. Miller still is, his, his name is still reverberating through the agency. Yes, he actually changed a lot of how NASA worked during his tenure at various jobs across the agency. And early on, he worked at several different centers, and he actually helped update systems of how they did things. And some of his, the practices that he put into place back in the 60s are still in place today, still affecting how these centers operate, which, of course, if you've ever worked in any big company or government agency, you know it. Everything is about procedure, and so his procedures are still helping power spaceflight. Indeed, and uh, again, we, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, and it's on their shoulders that we'll continue to reach out and reach forward. Some people had their doubts about that, and uh, unfortunately, I have something to say to those people. Don't worry. Budgets notwithstanding, I think the reach into the universe is going to continue, and I'm sure his thoughts and his... Uh, his soul is really, really being built into the, the space launch system, Orion, and uh, other efforts that NASA is undertaking even as we speak now. So, again, to George Miller, thank you for your service to the country and for your service to humanity. And uh, don't worry, we won't let you down. And with that, that ends this week's edition of, uh, of Talking Space. Cassie Tamini, thanks so much for hanging around with us and, and putting up with all this mess. <laughs> always, always happy to talk space. Yep. And uh, I'm sure we'll have the rest of the troop uh, gathered for the special IAC 
edition of Talking Space coming up soon. So, again, looking forward to that. For uh, Mark Ratterman, Sawyer Rosenstein, Kat Robison, and Ms. Cassie Tamanini, who's with me here, this is Gene McCulka. Thanks for listening.